Let us hear the gospel. Glory to thee, O Lord. And he, that is Jesus, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you, seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Grant us, O Lord God, the knowledge of your divine words. Fill us with the understanding of your holy gospel and the riches of your divine gifts and the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. Enable us with joy to keep your holy commandments and accomplish them and fulfill your will and to be accounted worthy of the blessings and the mercies that are from you now and at all times. Amen. Please be seated. The fire trucks came to a screeching halt in front of 631 4th Avenue as the neighbors came out to wonder what was going on in the Green household. Well, not much. The only thing the firemen found was one of our children drying his wet socks over the electric heater and smoking up the place. (laughs) Kids do crazy things. My friends and I made a a valuable discovery. We noticed that if we hid on the roofs of our uh, outbuildings and and the structures on the farm, uh, people couldn't find us. And so that became a valuable escape place. Then there was the teenager who thought out the frozen fuel line on his car with a propane torch. (laughs) He he escaped, but his car did not. Neither did the neighbor's car that was parked next to his. And, of course, there's the childhood sacrament of baptizing the cat, by immersion, of course, which many of us have practiced. 
um, which may not be much less danger than, dangerous than thawing out a fuel line with a propane torch. Kids do crazy things, and moms come to the rescue. Kids would have no fun without dads to encourage foolishness, so we need dads. Uh, but we need mothers to bind up the wounds. Ruth has made a career of driving victims to the emergency room, first their own children and then college students. Ruth says that the human race would not survive without mothers to protect kids from killing themselves. Well, Jesus was no longer a kid, but what he did was just as crazy as playing on the roofs. As his ministry was gathering momentum, he took his disciples up on a mountain by themselves, and there he selected, he pulled out 12... He, he pulled out 12 of these to be apostles. Now, the word disciple means learner, and these were men who were learning from Jesus. They had been following him, him around, hearing him teach, and they learned what he was teaching them. Uh, they heard him preach to the crowds. Uh, they talked with him in private. They saw him heal the sick and cast out demons. They were becoming acquainted with Jesus' ministry. And these disciples would have been able to discuss Jesus' ministry with others who would inquire about it. But now Jesus chose 12 for a different role. <clears throat> An apostle is more than a learner. An apostle is more than someone who passes on what he's been taught. An apostle possesses the authority of the one who commissions him. Pastor Matt might have strong opinions about the meaning and applications of our laws. He has a, a political interest, and in that it's likely that he does, but, you know, that's all they are. That those are his opinions. He might be right, but that doesn't make them anything more than just his opinions. He, he can't enforce those opinions on anything. A judge, however, has the authority to decide the meaning and application of our laws, and his ruling is authority, or authoritative. His ruling can be enforced. The state can take action against people that violate that. And similarly, any of Jesus' disciples could repeat his message to others. They could explain what Jesus was saying and urge others to accept his message. But an apostle speaks with the authority of Jesus himself. Anointing or appointing men as apostles looked crazy. Governors and emperors appoint apostles. Governors and emperors have authority to grant, so they can, on occasion, appoint apostles to exercise that authority in places where, this, where it's necessary. <laughs> By this action, Jesus is claiming to be more than the most popular preacher in history. Jesus is claiming to be more than the best prophet they've ever seen. He's claiming to possess governing authority. Jesus is multiplying his ministry 12 times by empowering these men to do what he was doing. Furthermore, selecting 12 was startling. Everyone would have recognized the significance of selecting the same number of men as the number of patriarchs of Israel. Jesus, in this passage, was doing no less than establishing a shadow government. This was more than an edgy church growth strategy. This was treason. Liberation theologians are half right. Jesus was a revolutionary. But you know, in theology, being half right makes you all wrong. <laughs> Jesus' revolution was colossally disappointing to, to revolutionaries of his day and to every day because Jesus' revolution was silently subversive and his revolution was total. And so we have mom to the rescue. What would you mothers do if your son began to overthrow the government? <laughs> Jesus' family said, he's out of his mind. Wouldn't you agree? 
Revolutions are violent affairs. People die in revolutions. Even the successful ones are gruesomely destructive. But think about this. Twelve unarmed men against the power of the Jewish establishment and the Roman Empire? I mean, this is truly deranged. This is clinically insane. What do you do when someone becomes insane and is about to get himself and all his friends killed? Well, kidnapping seems like a reasonable alternative, doesn't it? Meanwhile, the political authorities were equally alarmed. The scribes in this passage were were not country pastors. (laughs) These were men from the seat of religious and political power. In Judea, those two powers were inseparable, and these leaders tried to squelch the insurrection by a favorite weapon of politicians, by slander. They engaged in a mudslinging campaign. When you can't win an argument, demolishing an opponent with a mudslinging campaign is a cheap, easy, and remarkably effective way to neutralize an enemy. We see it every day in our own society. Up until now, the authorities have questioned, they've challenged, they've opposed Jesus' ministry, but now they employ the nuclear option. They declare that the power behind Jesus' miraculous work is Satan himself. Now, before we see how this confrontation ends, we're going to pause for a commercial break or, or a teaching break. Uh, Jesus, <laughs> at this point, suspends, we, Mark suspends the story to give us some teaching that Jesus provides. <clears throat> uh, because Jesus was truly a rabbi, uh, and he spent his whole life teaching, Jesus stated the obvious, that Satan would ruin his own cause uh, by attacking his allies. I mean, think about it. Hitler's armies dominated Europe while Germany had a truce, truce with Russia. But when Hitler attacked Russia, soon he was fighting a losing war on two fronts. Uh, you know, it's a dumb idea that Satan would attack his own demons. But Jesus adds that a successful attack on, Jesus, on Satan's forces could only be mounted by someone stronger than Satan. Jesus said, no one can enter a strong man's house <laughs> and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. From the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has been plundering Satan's house. Every day, Jesus walks in the front door, scoops up valuable possessions, and walks out, and Satan just simply has to watch piteously as Jesus does all this because he's tied up. He can't do anything. Jesus can do anything he wants because Satan is tied up and Jesus is plundering his house, his his kingdom. Well, you know, in our day, there are still stray demons on the loose, but the message of the gospel is that Jesus has come and tied up Satan. Revelation chapter 20 shows Satan locked up in a bottomless pit. That's another image for what Jesus has done to Satan. He's unable to deceive the nations any to deceive the nations anymore until Jesus lets him out. So true, demons can make mischief for, for us, especially in lands where the gospel presence is weak. But Jesus is overwhelmingly more powerful than Satan. We have nothing to fear from Satan, and the gospel puts his demons to flight. Every day until Jesus returns, every day Jesus is plundering Satan's house, releasing those held captive by the powers of darkness, and that is good news for the whole world. Jesus goes on to warn the scribes that they are making a deadly mistake. Jesus introduces here the eternal sin for which there is no forgiveness. Now, this unforgivable sin has disturbed people, who wonder if they might have committed it and are thus forever damned. (laughs) 
Well, if you're worried about whether or not you've committed the unforgivable sin, you most definitely have not committed it. That, that we can establish right away. The ones who have committed this are not in the slightest bit worried. Jesus identifies the unforgivable sin as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, blasphemy, the word blasphemy means insulting a deity. And Mark explains what Jesus meant here in verse 30, where he writes, quote, For they had said he has an unclean spirit, unquote. unquote. So the unforgivable sin is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is saying that the spirit of Jesus is unclean. In other words, here's, here's what this, how this works. If, if, you, if you hear Jesus speak, if you watch Jesus heal, if you see Jesus casting out demons and conclude that his spirit is evil, then you have insulted the Holy Spirit and you will never be forgiven. You know, if you do that, if, if you hear Jesus' words, and not just simply disagree, but if you hear Jesus' words and say, the spirit of that man is evil, then that is the unforgivable sin. And this is not so much a punishment as a consequence, because the only forgiveness that there, that there is is with Jesus. If you conclude that Jesus is empowered by evil, well, then you'll never come to him for, for forgiveness, and that's the only place that, 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 that forgiveness exists. And so, yeah. Uh, you will never receive forgiveness of your sins. None of us are born righteous. We all enter this world opposed to God. We're all suspicious of Jesus. Everybody enters this world suspicious of Jesus. That's the normal human condition. If immediate, warm acceptance of Jesus were the condition of salvation, no one would ever be saved. It's normal for sinful people not to believe in Jesus at first. It's normal for sin, sinners to reject some of Jesus' teaching. Un, unbelievers do not recognize Jesus as the divine Son of God. Unbelievers do not think that Jesus' death rescues us from sin. But some sinners listen to Jesus. And in spite of all that we've just said, in spite of the fact that they don't buy it all and they doubt who he is, they listen. And many think, many sinners think that a lot of his teaching is valuable, that he has things to offer. Many sinners gradually believe in Jesus more and more. They, they, they get hooked, and they come back, and they listen more and more. Uh, and the more they listen, the more they start, that belief in them starts to grow, that faith grows until they receive eternal life. But if you hear Jesus and conclude that he's demonic, you will leave and never come back. And the next time you see Jesus will be when he sentences you to hell for your wickedness. If you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, you have not committed the unforgivable sin, come back next week. Come back every week. Listen to Jesus as we read the scripture. Uh, listen to Jesus in the sermon. Watch Jesus as he feeds us with bread and wine. And ask God to enable you to believe, and God will give you the same Holy Spirit that he gave and operated in Jesus. Now, Jesus demolished the attempt of the scribes to discredit him. He made them look foolish. And when his own uh, family renewed their efforts to seize him, Jesus refused to join his family. The family thought they had Jesus' best interests in mind, but Jesus repudiated their efforts. <clears throat> the civil authorities thought they had the interest of the state in mind, but Jesus ignored them. Both family and state thought they had authority over Jesus, but they were wrong. 
Now, we want to be clear here. Jesus did not reject the family as a godly institution. Jesus honors the family. Later in Mark's gospel, we read of Jesus upholding marriage against the divorce-happy religious leaders. In that same passage, Jesus welcomed the children and gave them a special blessing. On the cross, moments before his death, Jesus committed the care of his mother into the hands of one of his apostles. Jesus reinforced his commitment to the family in Paul's letter to the Ephesians and said marriage was a picture of his own relationship to the church. So yes, so Jesus uh, upheld on the family and honored the family. Um, all over the New Testament, Jesus honored the family, and we should too. Now, every family has its black sheep. No family is perfect, but families are God's gift to us for our welfare. Family is where we learn to walk and talk. Family cares for us as we grow into adulthood and provides support for us all of our lives. No one loves us like our families do, except maybe Jesus, definitely Jesus. (laughs) Um, Family members may lose their patience with each other, sin against each other even, but, but there's an invisible bond which holds families together. It's shameful to be disloyal to your family, but your family cannot claim your first loyalty. Now, Jesus was not dismissive of the state. Jesus respects the state as an institution that God established for the good of society. And when challenged about paying taxes to a wicked pagan government, Jesus said, yeah, you should pay your taxes to Caesar. When Jesus was wrongly arrested, falsely accused, and unjustly executed by the Romans, Jesus submitted to Pilate, the Roman governor. And in Paul's letter to the Romans and in Peter's first letter, Jesus taught that his followers should obey the civil authorities. Now, each people has outstanding strengths and each nation has impressive virtues. Everyone should be proud of his own heritage and country. Each people also has its own weaknesses and no nation is perfect, far from it. But it's perverse not to take some pride in the accomplishments of your own people. And civic pride properly resides in other institutions as well. You know, whichever ones you might belong to and be fond of, political parties, labor unions, professional associations, cities and towns. Jesus loves all peoples. Jesus will bring every nation into his eternal kingdom. It's good to love your people, your nation, your party, but none of these can claim your first loyalty. Jesus honors the family and respects the state, but Jesus loves the church. In Ephesians, Jesus compares his love for the church to the love of a husband for his wife. The whole New Testament breathes this love which culminated in Jesus dying for the church. And in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus' joy over the church is expressed in the exuberance of a wedding feast. The church is what Jesus came to die for. Jesus did not come to die for isolated individuals to rescue them from sin and then let them make their way on their own until eternity. No, Jesus came to die for a people, for a nation, for a household, for a body. Anyone who is saved from sin is saved into the church. And anyone whom Jesus loves is incorporated into the church. Now, the word church is not found in this gospel passage, but this is the beginning of the church right here. The Apostle Paul said in in Ephesians, quote, 
You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So in this passage of Mark's gospel, where Jesus appoints the apostles, Jesus is laying the foundation for the church. And by church, scripture means more than those good folk who love Jesus. The church is populated by people saved by Jesus, but it is also an institutional structure. And here, Jesus laid the foundation with the apostles, and Jesus then is going to build on that foundation by adding evangelists and pastors and teachers and elders and deacons. Jesus is thrilled with his bride, the church, but the church is made up of people, and so sin is still in the church. And over the past 2,000 years, we can see that the church has made some horrible mistakes. Yet, through it all, Jesus has not abandoned the church. Jesus' love for the church never fades. The church is the new nation of saints. It's the new family of God. It's the new household of faith. Jesus lays claim to our first loyalty. And that loyalty is expressed by our commitment to the church. Jesus honors the family, he respects the state, and he loves the church. This means that of the three human institutions that God established for human flourishing, the church is central. Now, that does not mean that the church may intrude into family members or dictate to the state. In medieval times, the church owned much of the land. I believe in one country, even half of the the real estate in the country And the the church lorded it over the nations of Europe. And this is a gross distortion of the role of the church. That's wrong. God has appointed civil rulers to govern the affairs of all men. The church is not authorized to seize their role. In some places, the church has attempted to, to tell families what to wear, where to work, whom to marry. And this also is a gross distortion of the role of the church. God has appointed families to work to bear and rear children, and to care for each other. The church has no business meddling in these affairs. Now, in the Presbyterian Church in America, we say that the authority of the church is, quote, ministerial and declarative, end quote. That means that the church is authorized to declare what Jesus says and serve the people in accordance with the scriptures. So, Jesus says that Christians may not marry unbelievers. The church is authorized to teach this. You may not marry unbelievers. The church is authorized to expel anyone who refuses to obey scripture. However, the church is not authorized to tell you whom to marry. You know, some of us, some people in the church may not think that you've chosen a good partner, but if that person is a member in good standing in the church, the church has no business commenting on that other than to give you the advice of wise, mature people. It's your decision. That's a family matter. And the church cannot intrude in that. Um, The church, however, (laughs) um, is a social organism, and the church needs established procedures and policies to operate effectively. So during this pandemic, most churches asked everyone to wear masks and Churches were closed for a while. And this was a matter of public health and neighborly courtesy. And honorable men and women will honor reasonable requests. But it's a social expedient. This is not a matter of faith. And now it's churlish 
to oppose reasonable policies, but the church can't excommunicate anyone for disobeying these things. The church is authorized to declare and enforce what Jesus has said, no more, no less. So Jesus is central to all of life. He rules the world through the institutions that he's established. And of these, the church is central. Most of our waking hours are taken up with family activities, and the state regulates our civil life, but the church influences all of life. Jesus subverts and renovates family and state through the church while supporting them. Jesus works in the church through the means of grace, proclaiming the gospel, praying, administering the sacraments by patiently, faithfully, persistently preaching the gospel, praying for the world, administering the sacraments. The church is Jesus' instrument for renewing the world. Now, how does this work? How can what we do here in Lehigh Valley Presbyterian Church have any effect on the families and the civic life of the Lehigh Valley? Well, sometimes we can see God's hand at work, but most of the time we can't see it. It's invisible. We minister by faith. When Jesus says these things and we believe that what he says is true, that he's not pulling our leg, he's not, he's not tricking us, uh, what he says is true. Jesus says that he has all authority over heaven and earth, and that he is ruling all things. Um, he's appointed the church to a certain role, and we believe him. We believe that when the church plays its role, then, then Jesus' influence spreads all through the whole world. And so even though we can't see it, we believe Jesus' words, we live by them, we're trusting that he will save the world as he has promised to do. Now, this means that the calling of the church is to dispense the means of grace. Now, there are many activities which are a great benefit and blessing to a community. Children need to be educated. Everyone needs food and shelter. Public parks are terrific for recreation. I mean, there's a lot of things that need to be done and, and, and can be done which are an enormous blessing to, to people. Um, and somebody ought to do these things. But the church may participate in community functions, but it is called particularly to minister the means of grace. And the church is the only institution authorized to do so. There are many other institutions that do a lot of other things, but the church is the only institution that is authorized to offer the means of grace. If the church does not preach and pray and offer the sacraments, the the spiritual life of the community will wither and die. And from its beginning, the church has provided services for scripture and prayer every day and the Lord's Supper every week. Now, not every congregation can do those, those things exactly. You know, there are many congregations of strengths and sizes and, and abilities. But, but our desire is that every day someone can find a place to hear the scripture. Everyone can find a place to pray. Every week someone can find the Lord's Supper. That's our desire. The one thing the church must do is offer frequent opportunities to receive the means of grace. Now, this also means that membership in the church is more important than family or civic membership. Most of our week is spent with our families in the workplace and in our communities, and that's how it should be. 
Christians should not be badgered into coming to church every day or spending a lot of time in the week at the church. Importance is not measured by length of time. Although it is proper to spend less time at church in this building or in the functions of this institution, uh, although it's proper to spend less time here, your membership in the church is nevertheless the most important thing of membership that you have. So look around. The people in this building, these are your spiritual mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers. This is your spiritual family. These are the people who will enter eternity with you. And these here in this building, these are your primary and most important relationships. These are more important than any other relationships that you have anywhere else. And we have an opportunity each week to express our ties in this spiritual family. When we pass the peace, we're confessing that our unity, we're confessing our unity as the body of Christ. And when you pass the peace, obviously it's natural, you turn and greet first the people in your own pew, your husband, wife, your, your own children, whatnot. But this is an opportunity for you to get out of your pew, to walk across the building, to greet people who are not your close circle of friends, because they're your brothers and sisters. They're your mothers and fathers. To greet them. To greet people who perhaps are visitors or, or you've never spoken to uh, or people that you don't know well. We're, we're all one family here, a spiritual family. That's what Jesus did in this passage. He established that those who sit at his feet are the primary relationships, and we can express that during our passing of the peace. Well, after silencing the scribes, Jesus' family made another attempt to grab him. And then, looking about... At those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is looking for those who will sit at his feet as he teaches and who will do the will of his Father. Now, this isn't a comment on how tired the people were, how long they'd been standing. It isn't a comment on how pleasant Jesus' feet were. It's an expression for submission. To sit at Jesus' feet means to hear to believe, and to obey him. And this is Jesus' call to you today, to sit at his feet, to hear his word, to pray for grace to believe, to go forth to obey. And such are the people in Jesus' new family, new household, new kingdom. There's always room at Jesus' feet. Jesus says to you, come, sit a while, listen, Hear what I have to say, believe, and then be prepared to obey. Jesus is present in the church, and he touches people through the means of grace. Jesus' call to the church is to make room at his feet for the nations to sit, to offer many opportunities to hear the word of God, provide many opportunities to join in prayer, to serve the Lord's Supper on every Lord's Day. The call to the church is to scour the highways, to beat the hedges, to find people, to urge them to come in and sit with Jesus. Families must sit with Jesus. There is something better than the love you share with each other. It's the love you share with each other in Christ. Read the Bible every day as a family, as much as possible, and pray together. You don't have to be a skilled theologian or an eloquent speaker. Just read a paragraph or two of scripture and Ask God to bless you and to bless your family. Just use, use simple, ordinary words. Just you know, talk to God the way you talk to anybody. Um, if that's 
what your family devotions consist of, that's, that's good. That's it. <laughs> that's what God calls you to. And civil rulers, you all must, also must sit at Jesus' feet. You must obey God. Pursue justice. Shelter the helpless. You see the disaster that comes upon rulers that ignore God. So submit to the teaching of the church as it faithfully expounds the Bible. Jesus came to establish a revolution. But there was a counter-revolution, and that counter-revolution was a complete failure. Jesus' family and the scribes accomplished nothing. If your family will not submit to, to Jesus, you will accomplish nothing. If a nation will not submit to Jesus, it will degrade and eventually collapse. Now, true, the scribes eventually did succeed. They trapped Jesus, had him put to death, but that was Jesus' moment of ultimate triumph. As in one stroke, he defeated Satan, he destroyed sin, he conquered death, and opened, the he- opened heaven to all believers. If you will not sit at Jesus' feet, you may have some temporary success, but then eternal failure and misery. But if you will sit at Jesus' feet, if you will hear his words, believe what he says, and obey him, then you will become part of Jesus' new family and will grow closer and closer to Jesus and to each other. And in this life you will suffer, but like Jesus, you will conquer and reign with him in eternity. Those whom Jesus welcomes, he never casts out. When Jesus brings you into his eternal family, he keeps you safe, safe through sin and suffering until he brings you home. When the hungry crowds gathered at Jesus' feet, Jesus fed them. And today, Jesus has fed you with his word. Soon he will feed you with bread and wine. And this is ordinary bread and wine. But when you receive this, you will not be receiving just simply bread and wine. But you will, that's what you'll be receiving physically. But as we partake of this sacrament, Jesus himself enters you. And whom God has joined, no man can tear apart. Bride of Christ, rejoice, for your husband is here, and he loves you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not come merely to save us from our personal sins and then abandon us like an unwanted baby, but you established the church to be an eternal family for all who believe in you. We are so relieved that you did not abandon the church when she committed heinous sins, but you continue to love her and nourish her. Lord, we are prone to confusion, frustration, even anger at your church. We confess that we have sinned by this. We ask your forgiveness. Help us to see the church as you do, as the radiant bride of Christ. And furthermore, Lord Jesus, help us to sit at your feet. We confess that we are so busy with many important things. We are so convinced of our own importance that we scarcely have time for you. We repent also of this sin. Grab our attention and draw us to yourself every day. Create in us a heart to hear you and a will to obey. This we pray through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.